Hello and welcome to Iris for Sunday, January 21st, 2024, and I will also be reading content from the Saturday, January 20th, 2024 newspaper as well, as is now our custom for the Sioux City Journal for Iris. All right, let's take a look at the five-day forecast. Let's see what the weather that we have in store for the Siouxland area. And uh, thankfully, I think it's going to be a little bit warmer from this frigid, dangerous cold that we've had. Oh, and these numbers look amazing. They're actually upper in the double digits. All right, so today will be windy and not as cold. 15 to 25 miles per hour wind, so still a bit of wind chill, but a high of 29 degrees, so just below freezing. So that's, uh, considering what we've been facing the last week or so, this is really good news. Tonight will be breezy this evening. Winds 10 to 20 miles per hour, a low of 24. Monday, tomorrow, cloudy. Winds south-southwest at 7 to 14 miles per hour, a high of 33 and a low of 23. So we're even getting above freezing point there. That's pretty nice. Uh, Tuesday, a little uh, morning snow, cloudy. I hope that means a little. Uh, I think we've had enough snow, everyone. Uh, winds from north, 6 to 12 miles per hour, a high of 31, a low of 28. And then finally, Wednesday, low clouds, Wind 6 to 12 miles per hour again, uh, high of 35, low of 28, and then finally Thursday, low clouds, winds northwest, 6 to 12 miles per hour, high of 33, and a low of 27. So again, things are going to be much warmer compared to where they were relatively. Not warm, but, you know, not absolutely frigid cold. So I think for all of us, that feels like a heat wave. So... To the weather and in snow, and we've got a lot of snow. Yeah, headline, at the head of the storm, the long, comma, bitter storm. Subheadline, snowplow drivers didn't have an easy time either. I think that's pretty clear from Sioux City. Here goes the article. It's been a whirlwind last 12 days for Siouxland snowplow drivers as they battled more than a foot of heavy, wet snow, frigid temperatures, and gusty winter winds. Charlie Irwin... The owner of Lines and Stripes LLC in Sioux City has said he has never seen a winter like this one in his more than 20 years in the business. Quote, we basically do commercial properties and that was pretty brutal between the cold weather, the shovelers, the machines breaking down, and then just the snow, Irwin said. Quote, you'd get it all done and then it would blow right back in. Plows were breaking because it was so cold. It was brutal and it's still going today because we couldn't get them all the way cleaned up. Brian, who declined to provide his last name, works for Snow Doctors in Sioux City. He said, you just need to keep going in weather conditions like this. Quote, we're going 24-7 the last three days, four days straight, Brian said. He's been in the business 30 years in, as of this March. He recalls two other storms packing a punch like this last one that barreled into Siouxland. Quote, we just buckled down and get through it. You go home and take an hour nap and go right back to it. About 12 inches of snow blanketed Siouxland beginning Monday, January 8th and running into Tuesday, January 9th. Sioux City Mayor Bob Scott declared a snow emergency on January 8th. The snow emergency declaration prohibits parking or leaving a vehicle unattended on an emergency snow route street, noted by a blue and white sign with a snowflake. All area schools announced they would be closed due to the weather. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley was scheduled to be in Sioux City for an event at Horizon Family Restaurant, but it was closed, or canceled, excuse me. Then another band of snow went through on Thursday, January 11th, dropping several more inches of snow on the area 
and temperatures plummeted. The National Weather Service forecasted negative degree weather starting Saturday night and continuing into Tuesday, January 16th. Wind chills fell to negative 19 degrees with wind gusts as high as 25 miles per hour, according to the National Weather Service. Quote, it's hard on the machines and it's hard on the people, Irwin said. You can only handle so much. We've been pushing since January 8th and we haven't stopped. One bright note for local businesses in the snow business, this is the first winter in a while where Siouxland has received significant amounts of snow. Quote, yes, it has been good for business, but on the flip side, everything breaks and you struggle to get people to get out and help when you are run into the ground 24-7, Irwin said. Ron Gleaser is the highway maintenance supervisor for the Iowa Department of Transportation in Siouxland. The DOT is responsible for plowing and maintaining state highways. Well, we've been on 12-hour shifts since Monday night, January 8th. We started 12-hour shifts that day, and that carried on up until Sunday, January 15th, Gleaser said. He oversees two garages in Sioux City, one in Leeds and one on Hamilton Boulevard, and another in Sloan, Iowa. The DOT runs seven people per shift at the two Sioux City garages and three people during the day and two at night out of Sloan. Quote, last weekend when we had those high winds, visibility was really bad. We are out here in some of the traffic. They don't get the concept of slowing down. They spin out and they crash, and then that's a hazard for other motorists, Gleaser said. Quote, I've been doing this for about 37 years, and I've got a lot of winters under my belt. When it got really, really cold, we had to switch from our normal application of straight salt to a sand and salt calcium mixture. We just try to give them grit with, the, with that sand. The cold is causing equipment problems for the DOT, too. Quote, we have a lot of older trucks which are constantly breaking down. We try to get them fixed as quickly as we can, but you have to do a bit of jockeying. I have a spare truck in each shop. Once one goes down, that spare gets activated, and we try to get the other ones fixed as soon as we can. Sometimes we have more than one broken down, Gleaser said. Gleaser especially wanted to appeal to drivers to take it easy in winter conditions. Quote, it's not rocket science. We're not splitting the atom. You need to slow down. That's our biggest problem, Gleaser said. So that's on all the folks who are both in the, both the public sector and the private sector who are working to keep the streets and parking lots and sidewalks and all that clear of the massive amount of snow that we've received. So much thanks to them. All right, let's return back to Sunday's paper and where we get to talk about something that, well, maybe we can look forward to on much warmer days when you can go outside safely with much less clothing than you can now. And of course, I'm talking about a water park, um, and summer activities. Headline, making a splash. Subheadline, city council to vote on land purchase for Siouxland Splash Water Park. The Sioux City Council is expected to vote Monday to accept a group's proposal to purchase land on Highway 75 for the development of a multi-phase water park. Siouxland Splash 3820 Highway 75 is slated to be open for business by the summer of 2025 and is under designed by a team of water park consultants. Sioux City currently has several public pools and splash pads, but no water parks. Siouxland Splash will be a dynamic water park featuring an array of attractions such as body slides, tube slides, a multi-featured kids zone, and diverse pools for all ages, according to city documents, as well as, quote, a culinary hub with a variety of food and drink options. The council's approval of the resolution to accept the sale would also direct city manager Bob Padmore to negotiate a development and minimum assessment agreement with the group investing in the park. According to city documents, city staff is working to finalize the agreement. 
Under the terms of the agreement as currently proposed, Siouxland Splash LLC would purchase roughly 10 acres at the site of a at the site at a cost of $22,946 per acre. The group of investors would make a payment of $100,000 at closing and the balance would be paid over 10 years for a total of $229,460. Siouxland Splash LLC would commit to paying up to $250,000 toward a proportional share of the street improvements and regional storm water pond to serve the site. The group would also enter into a minimum assessment agreement of $7 million beginning January 1st, 2026, which would continue for 10 years. In addition to selling Siouxland Splash LLC the 10 acres, the city in turn would provide partial 75% property tax rebates of the new incremental taxes created by the value added to the property. Tax rebate assistance is estimated at $1.7 million over 10 years. The city would construct street improvements for an entrance to the site as required by the Iowa DOT, which has jurisdiction over Highway 75 North. Road improvements are estimated at $1 million. The city intends to apply for Iowa DOT RISE, that's an acronym R-I-S-E, grant funding for the improvements according to documents. The city would also construct a regional stormwater pond to serve the site at an estimated cost of $367,000, complete the construction of the sanitary sewer line project, and give Siouxland Splash LLC the option to purchase the remainder of the 42-acre site to accommodate future phases of the water park or related development. So that's something to look forward to in the next few years for the summer months when we're not dealing with freezing cold. All right, let's now turn to page A2 of today's Sunday paper. Headline, Fire Damages Sioux City Home. Sioux City Police Officers Alertness, a Sioux City Police Officer Alertness likely helped a family avoid losing its home to fire early Friday. While on patrol, the officer noted smoke coming from the roof of a home at 3071 Myrtle Street and reported it. Sioux City Fire Rescue was dispatched to the house at 3.40 a.m. While firefighters were on the way, the officer was able to wake up the occupants of the single-family home and all three adults and a pet safely evacuated the house, said Captain Ryan Collins, Deputy Fire Marshal. When firefighters arrived, heavy smoke was coming from the attic area. Collins said the fire was contained in the attic space and extinguished. The roof was damaged, but the house has not been red-tagged, enabling the family to remain living there. The fire was caused by an electrical malfunction. The house had functioning smoke alarms, but because the fire was in the attic, smoke had not yet drifted to the main living area to trigger the alarms, Collins said. Collins asked Sioux City residents to clear snow from hydrants located in their yards or neighborhood so that firefighters can quickly access them when responding to a fire. Trucks carry 500 gallons of water, which lasts about two minutes, Collins said, so it's important that firefighters don't have to spend time digging out a hydrant before hooking hoses to, to it to fight a fire. Well, getting to that water supply that water supply quickly is vital, he said. Headline, uh, Reynolds, colon, Iowa doesn't need all nine AEAs, or Area Education Associations, from Johnston, Iowa. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said Friday that she does not believe the state needs all of its nine area education agencies that provide support and expertise to schools, which she has proposed overhauling while insisting she isn't calling for their closures. Reynolds' proposal would redesign AEA's funding structure, streamline the services they offer, and create new oversight of the Iowa Department of Education. She has said her proposals needed to update a 50-year-old system and to improve special education services and outcomes for students with disabilities 
by narrowing the focus of AEA's work. The education agencies have strayed beyond their original charge of supporting special education services, she said, and have become too top-heavy. When asked Friday during recording of her appearance on this weekend's episode of Iowa Press and Iowa PBS whether Iowa needs nine AEAs, Reynolds said, quote, no. Quote, we're a small state, she said. That's why I did the realignment bill with state government. I need local governments to take a look at the level of bureaucracy that we have in place to serve the citizens of Iowa. It's too much. We need to drive consistency. We need to get that funding in the classroom and do everything we can to improve the outcome for these children. Reynolds' office has insisted that the governor is not calling for the closure of any AEAs and that our legislative proposal, likewise, does not require any to close. However, Reynolds has noted that the, that there already has been consolidation in the system. There used to be 15 AEAs in Iowa, and now there are nine. And our plan gives school districts the option to use funding for special education expertise elsewhere. Quote, we need to do something big. We need to reform, and I think by giving the districts the ability to hold AEA is accountable to decide what programs work best for the students that they are serving, Reynolds said on Iowa Press. Reynolds' proposal would restructure the way the agencies are funded. Instead of state and federal funding going to the AEAs to fund the services they provide, Reynolds said Iowa is the only state that operates that way. That money would instead go to K-12 public school districts, which would determine whether to use the funding for those AEA services or find similar services elsewhere either at a different AEA or through a private company. All right, next article. Headline, Sioux City Man Pleads Not Guilty of Attempted Murder. A Sioux City man charged in connection with a July shooting in which one man was killed and another wounded has pleaded not guilty to attempted murder and other charges. Michael Lundgren Jr., 42, entered his written plea Friday in Woodbury County District Court to charges of attempted murder, intimidation with a dangerous weapon, going armed with intent, willful injury, assault causing serious injury, and reckless use of a firearm. Lundgren is charged in connection with a July 30th shooting during a disturbance at 2013 Metropolitan Street in which Daniel Wing, 42, of Springfield, South Dakota, was killed and Mark Epstein was shot in the chest and the stomach. Lundgren was also shot in the leg and the arm. According to court documents, Lundgren entered Epstein's home with Wing and was upset because his girlfriend was there. Lundgren pulled a gun on Epstein, who then retrieved a gun from his bedroom. The two began shooting as they argued. Lundgren's girlfriend told police she did not know who fired first and fled when the shooting started. After it stopped, the woman saw Epstein leaving the house while calling 911. Wing lying in the front yard and Lundgren lying in the doorway. Lundgren's girlfriend took him to the hospital. Wing was pronounced dead at the scene and Epstein was taken to an Omaha hospital for treatment. Police said he will have to live in a long-term care facility after his discharge from the hospital because of the severity of his injuries. Lundgren also was charged with second offense possession of a controlled substance after officers found methamphetamine in his pocket after his January 5th arrest. He has pleaded not guilty. He was charged in August with felon in possession of a firearm in connection with the shooting. He has pleaded not guilty and is scheduled to stand trial in May. All right, next headline. Reynolds, colon, New gun laws would not have prevented shooting. Subheadline, quote, there's just evil out there, Governor says, from the Journal Des Moines Bureau. No new laws restricting gun access would have prevented a recent fatal shooting at Perry High School, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said on Friday. 
Reynolds was asked during the recording of this weekend's episode of Iowa Press and Iowa PBS whether gun regulation should be a part of the discussion around how to prevent school shootings like the one on January 4th in Perry, in which a 6th grade student and the school's principal were killed. Quote, no additional gun laws would have prevented what happened, Reynolds said. Quote, there's just evil out there. Police said the 17-year-old shooter was armed with a shotgun and a small handgun and had placed an explosive device which did not detonate in the school. Authorities have not yet said how the shooter acquired the weapons. Reynolds said Iowans' thoughts, hearts, and prayers continue to go out to the Perry community. Quote, this is a horrible tragedy. It's certainly nothing that any governor wants to wake up to in the morning and hear of what happened, Reynolds said. Like most Republicans, Reynolds has said the focus should be on mental and behavioral health care. She spoke about the actions she has taken as governor, including the creation of a, of, of a children's mental health care system, which advocates say is underfunded, and funding for mental health care providers, and spoke about her proposal to redesign and streamline the state's regional delivery system for mental and behavioral health care. Reynolds also spoke about school safety measures undertaken by her administration, including the School Safety Bureau, which received $100 million dollars in state-assigned federal funding and provides schools with an assessment of their safety needs. Quote, I am proud of what we've done, Reynolds said. I have made behavioral health and mental health a key part of my parties from that moment that I was sworn in as governor of this state. Reynolds also praised the response from local law enforcement and emergency responders to the Perry school shooting, which she called, quote, incredible. Iowa Press airs on Iowa PBS at 7.30 p.m. Friday and noon on Sunday on Iowa PBS at 8.30 a.m. Saturday on Iowa PBS World and can be viewed online at iowapbs.org. All right, we'll continue the briefs for the local stories. Headline, Victim of Lamar's Assault Identified by Police. Lamar's, Iowa. Lamar's police have identified the victim of a Friday afternoon assault. Michael Roy Gomez, 44, of Merrill, Iowa, remains in critical condition at Mercy One Sula Medical Center in Sioux City following the attack, according to a press release from the Lamar's Police Department. Police have arrested a 24-year-old Lamar's man, Reese Harms, and charged him with attempted murder and willful injury. According to a press release from the police, Lamar's police and Lamar's fire rescue were called to the Fieldcrest Apartments at 1122nd Street Southeast at approximately 5.20 p.m. Friday, Gomez was found in an apartment not breathing after having been assaulted. Personnel applied life-saving measures in transporting Gomez to Floyd Valley Hospital in the Mars. He was later taken to Mercy One Sula Medical Center for treatment. Following an investigation, authorities arrested Harms and charged him in connection with the assault on Gomez. No other details about the attack are being released at this time. The investigation into the incident is continuing. Headline Two die in Orange City house fire. Two people died in a fire early Friday in Orange City. Sioux, City commun- commun- Sioux County Communications received a call at 6.49 a.m. about smoke coming from a house at 604 Albany Avenue Northeast. Orange City Fire and Orange City Ambulance responded and found the single-family home filled with smoke. After entering the house, firefighters discovered... Alan Egdorf, 79, and Linda Egdorf, 82, both of Orange City, had died as a result of their injuries. The house was a total loss and damage exceeded $100,000. The cause of the fire remains under investigation by Orange City Fire Chief and Iowa State, the Iowa State Fire Marshal. Fire departments from Alton, Hospers, Granville, Sioux Center, and Lamar's assisted Orange City in putting out the fire. All right, we'll now turn to the Saturday uh, edition, Saturday, January 24th edition of the Sioux City Journal which actually is um, has its 
physical counterpart published every Saturday. All right, headline from the Saturday paper, a new discovery, subheadline, Cherokee archaeologist seeks info on prehistoric mounds in northwest Iowa. During his 32 years as a state archaeologist, Mark Anderson observed and investigated all kinds of historically significant sites across Iowa. But not long after his retirement and subsequent acceptance, acceptance of the part-time staff archaeologist job at the Sanford Museum and Planetarium in Cherokee a little more than a year ago, he received a call alerting him to something he'd never seen before, at least not in his this part of the state. Intrigue, Anderson visited the site and was excited to see low conical earthen mounds near a river. Quote, when I looked across the river terrace and saw a number of small mounds, it was pretty obvious these were man-made, Anderson said. You pretty much know right away after you visited them. The mounds are likely burial sites of prehistoric native peoples who lived here hundreds of years ago. Anderson said, visits to about a dozen other sites yielded similar findings and a new puzzle for the veteran archaeologist to ponder. Quote, I was not aware of many mounds at all in northwest Iowa, he said. Quote, the located places I wouldn't have expected and I wouldn't have looked if I was doing this on my own. Now he'd like to find as many sites as possible so this ancient history can be documented and preserved. Quote, I don't think he, we have a really good grasp of mounds in northwest Iowa, he said. There may be more mounds than we think. Part of my desire is to find these resources we're not really aware of and let people know so that they can preserve them. Prehistoric burial mounds look like small domes and can vary in size from 16 to 30 feet in diameter and up to 2 feet tall, Anderson said. Native people's customs of interning the dead began about 2,800 years ago, and the burial mounds are common in the eastern states, stretching into eastern Iowa where many mounds have been found. They're usually located on elevated positions on hilltops and ridges, which explains why few thought there, thought were thought to exist in northwest Iowa. Aside from the less hills in Woodbury and Plymouth counties, where mounds are known to be located, this part of the state is pretty flat. Great Plains peoples who may have lived in this area also don't didn't construct mounds, which explains why they're rarely found west of the Missouri River. Anderson's interested in searching an area known as the Northwest Iowa Plain, the Little Sioux River Valley that includes Sioux, Lyon, Osceola, O'Brien, Cherokee, and Clay counties, and portions of Woodbury and Plymouth counties. Rather than elevated sites, mounds he's observed in this area are on terraces along rivers and streams, likely because they are the highest points available and not in danger of flooding. Anderson has a lot of questions, like why some sites have more mounds than others, and he hopes that finding more sites may lead to some theories. Quote, I have a lot of guesses, he said. There are enough out there that I need to look further. That's where the public comes in. Anderson asks the landowners contact him about possible sites so that he can take a look. There are compelling reasons for landowners to let him do it. If mounds are found, landowners can receive tax incentives for preserving archaeological sites. Anderson said the locations would be kept on file at the state archaeologist's office and not be made public, so landowners should not be concerned about having tourists or artifact hunters trespassing on their land. Thousands of mounds have been lost over the years to erosion and cultivation by settlers. Anderson said the mounds can be so subtle that farmers tilling the land in the past likely never realized they were accidentally destroying sites. Cattle grazing also has likely worn down some mounds over the years, making them indistinguishable from the surrounding terrain. Before more mounds are lost, Anderson said, it's vital to find as many as possible to better understand the people who once lived here. Very little is known about them, he said. There are 26 native nations that trace their ancestry to Iowa, and a number of them likely are descendants of the people who built the mounds. Archaeologists aren't interested in excavating the sites, he said, but instead want to leave them undisturbed and catalog them so there's a record of their existence. 
quote, we'd like to preserve as much natural history as possible, and landowners and private citizens can help us with that a lot, Anderson said. Landowners who think they may have mounds on their property can email Anderson at archaeologists at sanford-museum.org or contact him through the museum. He's eager to hear about more potential sites. Quote, I don't know what the results will be, but I suspect we'll find more than anticipated, he said. This is really exciting for me. All right, let's now turn to page A4 of the of Saturday's paper. Headline, Judge Denies Taylor's Motion for Acquittal in Voting Fraud Case. A federal judge has denied a motion to acquit the wife of Woodbury County Board of Supervisors member Jeremy Taylor of 52 counts of voter fraud. Chief U.S. District Judge Leonard Strand ruled Thursday that federal prosecutors put forth adequate evidence for jurors to find Kim Taylor guilty. Quote, I've determined that the evidence presented at the trial was sufficient to allow the jury to return verdicts of guilty as to all counts, Strand wrote in his eight-page ruling. Kim Taylor was found guilty on November 21st of 26 counts of providing false information and registering in voting, three counts of fraudulent registration, and 23 counts of fraudulent voting to stuff the ballot box for her husband, who ran unsuccessfully for the Republican nomination for a U.S. House seat in the 2020 primary before winning election to the county board that fall. A sentencing date has not yet been set. During the six-day trial in the U.S. District Court in Sioux City, prosecutors presented evidence to show how Kim Taylor, a Vietnam native who met Jeremy Taylor while he was teaching there, ran a coordinated effort to collect hundreds of votes from Sioux City's Vietnamese community on her husband's behalf. Evidence showed Kim Taylor approaching, approached numerous Vietnamese voters who had limited English comprehension and filled out and signed election forms and ballots on behalf of them and their English-speaking children. In some cases, she advised them they could fill out and sign voter registration forms, absentee ballot request forms, and the ballots themselves for their children without their consent. Sons, daughters, and a granddaughter, who all were born in Sioux City and speak English, each testified that they had never given consent for their parents to fill out election forms for them, and all were unaware that they had done so. In his renewed motion for acquittal filed after the verdict, Taylor's attorney F. Montgomery Brown argued that the government failed to prove the elements of each charge beyond a reasonable doubt, and that no legal principle had been presented showing Taylor had a duty to fully translate all documents for the people she was helping, and that it was not known that she acted knowingly and willfully because she was not aware of the specific law she was violating. Strand rejected the argument, saying the government submitted more than 100 exhibits and extensive witness testimony that allowed the jury to find Taylor guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. He also ruled the jury was free to find Taylor unlawfully misled voters, even if she was not a qualified interpreter. Finally, referring to an earlier ruling in the case, Strand said ignorance of the law is not an excuse for breaking it, and knowledge of the conduct and knowledge that the conduct is unlawful is all that's required. Taylor was an experienced campaign operative, Strand said, having assisted her husband in previous elections and other political activities, had helped Vietnamese voters in prior elections, and was a former Iowa legislative aide. Quote, the evidence was sufficient for the jury to, fi to found that a reasonable jury could infer from this evidence that Taylor acted knowingly and willfully, Strand wrote. Woodbury County election officials became aware of possible voter fraud in September 2020 when two Iowa State University students from Sioux City requested absentee ballots only to learn ballots had already been cast in their name. When processing absentee ballots on election night, election workers noticed the handwriting on several of them appeared to be similar. After the election, Woodbury County Auditor and Election Commissioner Pat Gill notified the FBI, <clears throat> which launched an investigation. Tyler, 
Taylor was indicted and arrested in January of 2022. Jeremy Taylor has not been charged, but was named as an unindicted co-conspirator. The case remains under investigation. Prosecutors have not commented on any possible future indictments. After Kim Taylor's verdict, other elected officials, county board members, and members of the public called for Jeremy Taylor to resign from the county board. He resigned as the board's vice chair in December, but said he intends to serve the remainder of his term representing District 5. His seat is up for election this fall. Headline, Woodbury County Attorney's Office Continues to Have Staffing Issues. Despite numerous efforts, the Woodbury County Attorney's Office is still struggling to find staffing. Last year, Woodbury County Attorney James Loomis approached the Board of Supervisors about an ongoing staffing issue, asking for support to fill the empty positions. The board made a variety of changes, but Supervisor Matt Ung said, while the issue has gotten better, there are between five and seven empty positions at any time. Loomis said the shortage is not due to mismanagement or lack of an effort, but due to many staff members needing to relocate for their families. On Tuesday, the board voted to advance the effective date of the Assistant County Attorney's Union contract and temporarily increase the retention bonus from $1,500 to $3,000. The new Woodbury County Assistant Attorney's and Victim Witness Coordinator Union contract provides a 9% wage increase for employees. Instead of starting July 1st, the wage increases increase will be effective January 22nd. Quote, drastic times require drastic measures. No other county department has worked without one-third of its budgeted staff for over a year, nor received fewer applicants for its open positions, Ung said. Ung said the financial impact of this move will be paid for by the county attorney's unspent staffing budget. After being elected county attorney in 2022, Loomis approached the board with a plan to fill the vacant positions in his department. The board approved giving 4% raises to staff, giving $1,500 retention bonuses, giving automatic vacation time, shifting a position to create a new deputy, and starting new hires at a wage staff equivalent to their experience and more. Loomis said there was an increase in applications after these changes. Quote, unfortunately, it has done nothing to reduce the number of vacancies, which has been at five to seven for the last year. This resulted in felony attorneys handling over 100 cases, unsaid in board documents. Loomis added it should be around 40 or 50 cases. Loomis said so far, the driving force for people to work in Woodbury County is that they are already local. He said money is a way to incentivize people to transplant to the area. Currently, new hires in the county attorney's office can receive a $1,500 retention bonus after one year of employment. With Tuesday's change, anyone hired from January 22nd to June 30th will receive a $3,000 bonus after one year of employment. In April, Loomis proposed giving support staff a $2,000 extra bonus because of the extra work they were taking on during the shortage, but was denied by the Board of Supervisors. The board denied the request, saying they did not want to set a precedent cited similar requests from County Sheriff Chad Sheehan that was also denied. Ung said the increased bonus and advanced union increase is not meant to, quote, open the floodgates, but to bring meaningful remedy to this issue. He said advancing the wage increase allows them to hire staffing at the new wage sooner. Loomis said he hopes to present these financial opportunities to graduating students this winter during on-campus interviews at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, Crane University, University of South Dakota, Drake University, and the University of Iowa. Quote, at the end of the day, money speaks, he said. Headline, Sioux City Man Sentenced to 50 Years for Fatal Shooting. Because of Joseph Cruz's actions during October night in 2022, Carlos Aguirre's children will never get to know him. Well, they'll never have a life, the life experience with their dad because you took that. You took his life, Aguirre's mother, Juniata Vasquez, said to Cruz Friday before his sentencing. Vasquez said Aguirre was a son, a cousin, and a grandson, in addition to a father, and no one will be able to share that relationship with him again. 
crying. Vasca said she knows that she will see her son again someday. A Woodbury County jury in December found Cruz 20 of Sioux City guilty of second-degree murder for the October 29, 2022 shooting death of the 21-year-old Aguirre during a party at 1421 West 5th Street. District Judge Zachary Hinman sentenced Cruz in accordance with state statute to 50 years in prison, and Cruz must serve at least 35 before he's eligible for parole. Cruz was also ordered to pay restitution of $150,000 to Aguirre's estate and $4,835 to the Iowa Crime Victim Assistance Fund for payment of Aguirre's funeral expenses. Cruz declined his right to make a statement before he was sentenced. Witnesses testified at trial that Cruz and Aguirre began to argue over the ownership of a gun at the party and that, and then got into a physical altercation. At one point, Aguirre displayed a gun and cocked it. During a struggle for control of the gun, it fired multiple times and Cruz was struck in the leg before the gun fell from Aguirre's grasp. Cruz picked up the gun and shot Aguirre in the back of the head and in the back. Aguirre died at the scene. Prosecutor said Cruz shot Aguirre because he was angry Aguirre would not give up the gun, which he had bought after Cruz gave him the money to make the purchase. The defense argued the shooting was self-defense. Anthony Williams, 19, who was Cruz's cousin, was shot in the chest during the scuffle for the gun and died later at Mercy One Sula Medical Center. Cruz was tried for second-degree murder for Williams' death, but jurors found him not guilty. All right, let's now turn to page A6, or The Week in Iowa. This is a recap of shorter news stories that made the news, well, around our state. Headline, Trump Cruises to Huge Caucus Victory. Former President Donald Trump noted an early and sizable victory in his campaign for the GOP presidential nomination on Monday when he won the Iowa caucuses in a landslide. The former president received 51% of the votes in the contest, the largest victory ever for a competitive Republican caucus. Trump won solidly in every county but Johnson, where Nikki Haley beat him by just one vote, proving that he still has a firm grip on the Republican electorate. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis came in second, while former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley notched a close third place. Both claimed the results as a victory and will go on to future contests in New Hampshire and South Carolina. Headline, Early Caucus Call Questioned. Iowa GOP Chair Jeff Kaufman criticized national media outlets that called Trump's caucus victory on Monday night before many Iowans had finished voting. The calls came in a little after 7.30 p.m. when only a few precincts had reported results. Network said those early returns combined with entrance polling gave them all the information they needed to make that call. Headline, Vivek Ramaswamy, Asa Hutchinson exit. The Republican presidential candidate field thinned out after Monday's caucus. Vivek Ramaswamy, an Ohio entrepreneur, dropped his presidential bid that evening and endorsed Donald Trump. Former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson was one of Trump's chief critics in the field, ended his campaign on Tuesday. Odds and ends. Headline, Conversion Therapy. Iowa Senate Republicans are considering a bill to prohibit local governments from banning so-called conversion therapy, a method of attempting to convince gay people to become heterosexual that has been widely discredited and opposed by a bevy of medical and psychiatric organizations. Headline, AG sues TikTok. Iowa Attorney General Brenna Byrd sued the social media giant TikTok this week, claiming the app is, quote, misleading parents by misrepresenting the content available to teens. Bird said the app hosts sexual content, profanity, and content about drug use despite its 12-plus rating in the Apple App Store. Around the Water Cooler Headline, University of Iowa Athletic Director 
Beth Goetz will become the permanent athletic director at the University of Iowa, the school announced Thursday. Goetz has served as interim director since August. Her salary will be $850,000 per year, plus bonuses and deferred compensation. Goetz became interim director after Gary Barta, who had held the role since 2006, announced his retirement. Headline, Open Meetings Law. Government officials who violate open meetings and records law would face different penalties under a bill proposed by Representative Gary Moore, Republican of Bettendorf. Moore said the bill was inspired by the difficulty of individuals obtaining records related to the Davenport building that partially collapsed last year. Headline, Chuck Grassley released after hospitalization. Iowa U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley was briefly hospitalized this week and received antibiotic infusions for an unspecified infection, his office said. Grassley 90 was released on Thursday and is expected to return to work. Headline, Medical Cannabis Expansion Considered. Iowa lawmakers considered a bill to add raw cannabis flour to the state's medical marijuana program. The The program currently allows only cannabis extracts like capsules and oil vaporizers. Proponents say the law would reduce the cost dramatically for patients. All right, let's now turn to page A7 for more local news recap. Headline, More Dampers Missing in New Jail. Two more fire dampers are missing from the new Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center. On Tuesday, the Law Enforcement Center Authority announced two more fire dampers are needed in the facility, adding to the 38 found missing in August, the major cause of a seven-month delay in the project. One fire damper, one motorized damper, and one diffuser were found missing, said Shane Albrecht of the Baker Group, a consultant for the project. A project change directive was approved to begin the process of installation. Previously a compliance officer for Houseman Construction, the Lincoln, Nebraska-based general contractor, was the first to discover the missing 38 dampers. Kevin Roast of Goldberg Group Architects said the newly missing dampers were missed by the engineers and inspector, but found by C.W. Suter. No cost was discussed regarding the missing dampers. The authority also approved a contract with the Resource Consulting Engineers of Ames, Iowa for $9,400 on Tuesday. The scope of their work is to review proposed changes from the design team, including revised air and water flow rates, to multiple pieces of equipment throughout the the building, according to the contract. During the meeting, it was indicated that after the work is completed, the engineer will be used to review other aspects of the project. Albrecht said this firm has previously worked with the county. All right, let's go back to the snow and the stories and the dealing with the aftermath of the snow. Headline, clearing the streets, subheadline. Residents must remove snowbound vehicles to avoid towing, comma, fines. Sioux City Police say residents need to do a better job of removing snowbound vehicles from city streets and obeying the emergency snow ordinance after multiple rounds of heavy snow and strong winds walled the region. Over the past week, at least 125 snowbound vehicles have been tagged in the city, according to data provided by the Sioux City Police Department. But if you drive around pretty much any side street in Sioux City, you're going to see a number of snowbound vehicles, Community Policing Sergeant Tom Gill said Thursday. Make sure you get those vehicles off the street and obey the snow ordinance if there's an emergency snow ordinance. The reason is we need to get those streets cleared. It's hard for the plows to get through, especially a side street that's narrow. The number of vehicles tagged between January 11th and 9.45 a.m. Thursday is likely higher than the 125. As Gill said, officers may tag a vehicle but may but not write a report. He said reports have been written on 125 snowbound vehicles. He said 58 snowbound vehicles were towed over that time period. A lot of our officers will just put the 24-hour sticker on there. That sticker gives the person 24 hours to get it moved or it will get towed. Some officers will do the sticker and write a report. That's where you get the 125. So there's been 125 reports written for snowbound vehicles, Gill explained. 
When officers learned of a snowbound vehicle, Gill said they first try to contact the owner to get a move right away. If they can't get a hold of the owner or the owner can't dig out the vehicle, he said officers will call for a tow truck. Well, Gill described the sticker as a 24-hour courtesy. He said snowbound vehicle that is blocking a city plow will have to be towed even if it doesn't have a sticker on it. He said all a plower driver needs to do is to get a vehicle towed is to call police. Gill noted that the department also has a civilian code enforcement officer who primarily takes snowbound vehicles and writes corresponding reports on those vehicles Monday through Friday. After tagging a vehicle, he said the code enforcement officer returns to the site 24 hours later. The vehicle has not been moved. Gill said the code enforcement officer will have the vehicle towed. Gill said it's nice having a code enforcement officer on staff because officers don't always like to have to call for a tow truck. You quote, you have to wait quite a while for a tow truck to get here, especially in this kind of weather. That's why officers don't like to tow vehicles. That's the last thing they would want to do. They'd rather try to get a hold of the owner to move it, he said. If the owner calls for a tow, that means he's got to stay there until the tow is done. That could take him almost an hour and a half, close to two hours, depending on the weather and how busy the tow truck service is to get back on the street. Since the city contracts with Meyer Towing for tow service, Skill said Meyer is the only towing service offers officers can use to remove snowbound vehicles. Quote, if all their trucks are busy, then the officer is going to be waiting there for a while, and the tow truck won't come in to do it if there's no officer there. Gill said the cost to release a towed vehicle is $35. He said the owner must come to the police department to pay the fee and show proof of ownership as well as a valid ID at that time. Meyer Towing will charge them $19 for a normal tow, according to Gill. Quote, if they have to wrench it, it's more than that. I'm not sure how much more. They also charged then $12 a day for the storage fee, he said. Headline, Pillen makes taxes the centerpiece of speech from Lincoln, Nebraska. Nebraska Governor Jim Pillen pledged in a state of the state speech Thursday to work with lawmakers, quote, as long as it takes to cut property taxes 40% this year. The governor delivered his speech to the Nebraska legislator along with his proposed budget updates and a handful of new initiatives. He started roughly 45 minutes later than planned because of a group of senators who were speaking against plans for developing a North Omaha business park. In his speech, Pillen vowed to cut government regulation, focus business incentives on child care and housing, and protect women in athletics from having to compete with transgender women. He urged lawmakers to join him in those quests. Quote, if we look beyond localized interests and set politics aside and instead put the best interest in Nebraska as our sole guiding principle, I have no doubt that we can win for our agriculture, our businesses, our taxpayers, our kids, and our future, he said. But Pillen left no doubt that property taxes are his top focus. He declared them to be the state's biggest economic problem and said they have been hurting farmers, ranchers, homeowners, and businesses for most of our lifetimes. Nebraska currently ranks seventh in the U.S. for highest property taxes, he said. Well, higher property taxes hurt every Nebraska in every part of our state. It must be fixed now, he told lawmakers. Adding one of his favorite lines, property taxes are so out of whack, you don't even need to own property to be adversely affected. Pillen offered few new details about how he plans to address the problem. He said his goal is to cut the amount of property taxes paid by Nebraskans from $5 billion to $3 billion using a combination of tax shifts and stricter limits on local governments. Half of the $2 billion is already accounted for. Roughly $250 million would come from legislation last year that eliminated property taxes for community colleges and replaced them with state aid. Another $750 million would come from repurposing the income tax credits that are available to offset school property taxes paid. Currently, about 30% of the amount allocated for those income tax credits go unclaimed. 
Pillen wants to, quote, front load those credits, meaning money would be sent directly to local governments to replace property taxes. That should bring down tax bills sent to property owners. He wants to distribute another $1 billion using a similar mechanism, but the source for that money has yet to be determined. State Senator Ben Hansen of Blair said the true amount of property taxes cuts will be determined over the remaining 49 days of the session through the bills that make it through the legislature to Pillen's desk. Pillen previously noted that the idea of raising the state sales tax by two cents to a nation leading 7.5 cents. He has since backed off from that idea, but hasn't completely closed the door on it. Speaking to reporters later, Pillen said he is, quote, supportive of all options, including a rate increase. He said all sales tax exemptions are on the table except those that would make Nebraska less competitive or that would harm people on fixed incomes in the elderly. He would not change the long-standing policy of exempting food items. He mentioned several bills introduced this week that would apply sales tax to a number of now-exempt food goods and services, including candy, pop, accounting services, business legal services, data centers, veterinary care, specialty livestock services, storage, and moving services. He said he believes Nebraskans would support paying more in sales tax if that shift would mean lower property taxes. Past proposals to eliminate sales tax exemptions have drawn crowds of opponents. Quote, There's a big attitudinal adjustment in the state of Nebraska, Pillen said, adding that there is a recognition that to fix the problem, we are all going to have to give something. Members of the legislative legislator expressed differing views on the proposal. Hansen agreed with the governor that the majority of taxpayers would favor such a shift, while Senator Danielle Conrad called it a, quote, tax-raising scheme. Nebraska Democratic Party Chair Jane Klebb criticized the plan, claiming it would give Nebraska the highest sales tax in the nation and argued it would hurt middle-class and working families. Senator Merv Repi of Ralston said a 40% property tax cut is an ambitious goal, but doubted that the majority of Nebraskans can get behind plan to lower their property taxes if it raises their taxes in other areas. Quote, it's not going to be friendly and it's not going to be nice, Rippey said. Among other initiatives, Pillen said he wants to allocate more than $87 million in American Rescue Plan Act dollars for highway construction, shift $25 million from Affordable Housing Trust Fund into rural workforce housing, and invest $2.5 million into biomanufacturing and biotechnology. He wants to exempt Nebraska National Guard pay from income taxes and provide business tax incentives to companies that help with employee child care expenses and put money into rural workforce housing. The governor also touched on a couple of hot-button cultural issues, urging lawmakers to support a proposal by Senator Kathleen Kouth of Omaha that would bar students from competing on athletic teams or using bathrooms that do not match their sex at birth. Next story, headline, Core predicts low runoff in River Basin. Much needed precipitation in the latter half of 2023 helped push runoff into the Missouri River to above normal levels. The same is not expected for the new year. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers had, has forecast 2024 runoff into the River Basin above Sioux City at 20.1 million acre-feet, 78% of the average of 25.7 million acre-feet. The forecast is based on runoff trends, dry soil conditions, and below normal plains and mountain snowpack. Mountain snowpack that feeds the upper river basin when it melts in the spring currently ranges from 47 to 62% of average. More than half of the mountain, mountain snow typically falls from January 1st to mid-April. Water storage in the river's six reservoirs remains below the flood control zone. And the Corps expects to begin the 2023 runoff season of March 1st at 
1.3 million acre feet below the flood control zone that starts at 56.1 56, million acre feet. Despite the lower storage numbers, enough water remains for water supply needs, the Corps said. Quote, weather and river conditions continue to be monitored and lease in releases from the Gavin's Point Dam will be adjusted to the extent practical to help mitigate any negative effects from, of the cold weather. We know the importance of our operations to water supply, John Remus, chief of the Corps' Missouri River Basin Water Management Division, said in a news release. Releases from, releases from Gavin's Point Dam near Yankton, South Dakota, were reduced to the winter rate of 13,000 cubic feet per second on December 9th. Releases were increased on January 8th to 15,000 cubic feet feet per second to help maintain levels for water supplies because of ice forming on the river during the frigid weather conditions. Forecasts can change dramatically over the course of a year. A year ago, the Corps forecast a 2023 runoff at 81% of average. The year ended with 30.4 million acre feet runoff or 118% of average. All right, let's now turn to the business section of Saturday's Sioux City Journal. Headline, Nebraska Gaming Commission's Gun Buying Raises Questions. Subheadline, report last month state said state didn't need more casinos. Questions are being raised about the recent purchase of semi-automatic rifles by the Nebraska Racing Gaming Commission and whether a December report sufficiently answered whether the state could handle more track, racetrack and casinos. The questions come as the commission, which has ramped up to 25 employees since the opening of casinos in Nebraska 16 months ago, met Friday to discuss the gun purchase and whether a new analysis is needed about whether more than six racetrack casinos should be allowed in the state. That 111-page market analysis issued late last month concluded that Nebraska didn't need any additional racetracks. That dealt a blow to several communities across the state that want to apply for a state permit to open so-called racinos, a racetrack with a casino. At least two members of the commission, Tony Fulton and Shane Greckel, along with the state senator, John Lowe, told the examiner on Thursday that the recent report was incomplete. Lowe, who heads the committee that deals with gambling in the Nebraska legislature, said the report barely mentions the impact on horse racing industry in the state. Quote, I think the whole study needs to be redone, the senator said. Fulton, a former state senator and state tax commissioner, said the report didn't cover all the topics required by the legislator, which, order, which ordered the study to help determine whether the state could support more casinos and horse racing. Currently, casinos are only allowed at the existing racetracks in Lincoln, Grand Island, Omaha, Columbus, South Sioux City, and Hastings. Several communities, including Bellevue, Norfolk, North Platte, Fremont, Kimball, and York, have also expressed interest in opening casinos. Another member of the Gaming Commission, Shane Greckel of Bloomfield, also said the study was incomplete. Quote, it definitely needs an amendment or an addendum, Greckel said. It never even highlighted anything of the value of agriculture to that racing brings. Two organizations, Warhorse Gaming and the Nebraska Horsemen's Benevolent and Protective Association, sent letters to the commission this week calling for a new study of whether more racinos should be allowed. Among the concerns raised by Lance Morgan of Warhorse Gaming was that the study was premature because every casino's Every casino in the state has yet to fully open, thus their impact couldn't be accurately measured. The study was done by the Innovation Group, a gaming consulting business based in New Orleans that was paid $48,000 for its analysis. The analysis of whether new racinos are needed might come into play when the Racing and Gaming Commission is scheduled to vote on whether to allow the transfer 
of the quarter horse racing license in Hastings to Ogallala. That would allow the opening of the first casino in the state west of Grand Island. The market analysis on the impact of more casinos came a month after members of the commission learned to their surprise that the agency had purchased 10 short-barreled semi-automatic rifles for use by its 10 plainclothes investigators. The Sig Sauer MPX rifles plus associated equipment cost $30,000 Commissioners learned about the purchases in November and, and were later told that the guns would be used only as a last resort in the event of an active shooter event at a casino or a racetrack. The firearms official said would not be carried on the casino floor, but would be kept within easy access in the event of an incident. Quote, you have to meet force with force, said Steve Eppins, a former Lancaster County deputy sheriff who is an investigator with the commission. Most active shooter incidents involve assault rifles, he said. Steve Anderson, the director of enforcement at the commission, said all his investigators are sworn law enforcement officers who regularly train with weapons. He said that there have been nine shooter-related incidents at casinos since 2018 and that the MPXs are the same weapons used by the Nebraska State Patrol for its SWAT team. Said Eppins, quote, if you don't think active shooter incidents happen at casinos, just Google it. Low question whether the Gaming Commission needs such firepower. Quote, this is a regulatory agency, he said. The State Patrol, the center added, is there to deal with shooting incidents. Both Fulton and Greco said that once an explanation was provided to justify the gun purchases, they agreed with it. But the two commissioners said the decision to buy the guns could have been handled better and that the commission is now adopting guidelines on how such purchases should be approved. Tom Sage, the executive director of the Racing and Gaming Commission, said in a recent interview that the guns were, quote, purchased to be proactive. Quote, we're trying like hell to make sure we don't have a big issue at a casino and then we hear we, could, we told you so, Sage said. He said that criminal activities do occur at casinos, mentioning sex trafficking, drugs, fraud, and gang-related activity. Sage added that there was a fatal shooting at Fauner Park in March. Sage recently took a leave of absence to deal with personal health issues and was, was unavailable to respond to questions raised about the market analysis of casinos. But in a recent interview with the Examiner, he defended the steps he'd taken in recent months to ramp up the commission to deal with the new industry gambling casinos. The organization, Sage said, had to hire new staff and learn about a totally new activity in the state and how to regulate it. But he and the agency's lawyer, Ryan Forrest, said that's brought a lot of pressure to bear in long hours. Quote, you can't make everyone happy, Forrest said. Added Sage, I'll put our record up against anyone. End quote. All right, friends. Well, that brings us to the end of Iris for Sunday, January 21st and Saturday, January 20th, 2024. That is all I can fit in this hour with you today. So I hope you all have a wonderful day. Enjoy our warmer weather. Be safe, be well, and if you can, take care of someone else. All right. Bye-bye.